And holding you up So there's nothing I can do To let you down Doesn't take a trophy To make you
Hey, good morning. Welcome. We are so very glad that you're here. If you're new here at Cap City, I want to just give you a little bit of heads up of what's going to happen on this morning, all right? We're going to be here for about 65 minutes. We're going to sing some songs. One of our pastors is going to talk about this culmination of a trail of grace that we've been walking through throughout the Old Testament. And at some point, we're, we're going to take a few moments. We'll get up. We'll come to these tables that we call worship stations where we do a couple of things that Jesus followers have been doing for centuries. One of them is called the Lord's Supper. One of them is something that we call offering where we come and we give back our first part back to God. You're also going to see these moments of celebration. You're going to see something that we call a baptism. And, and you're going to see examples of people who've changed their lives because of this relationship and interaction with a guy named Jesus. All in all, you're going to see a type of a family where we choose to honor God because we think that he deserves it. And so we're glad that you're here. Thanks for coming. And we hope that you're going to join in.
That's cool stuff, isn't it? That's why we're here. I wanted to take you back just to the words of Jesus right before he left this earth. He had his disciples gathered around and he said, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which basically means God gets to be God, right? And he says, I want you to go and tell everybody everywhere about me. Make disciples. And I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you because that's the good life. That's the way life is lived best. And then he says, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. And guys, the disciples did that. And their disciples did that. And 2,000 years later, we're still doing that. We still believe that that's what it's all about, right? Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that we can be here. We're grateful for the life that you have offered us. Not just life in this world, but eternal life with you. We're grateful for the time to get together here this morning to give you the honor and the praise that you deserve and to be receptive to however you might nudge us. We love you dearly. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Okay, we go from there to the end of this trail of grace. We're going to end it up in a real weird spot. If you've ever tried reading the Bible at all, I suspect you ran into these genealogies, right? And you're kind of like, really? There's this list of people that I don't really care about with names that I can't pronounce, and what in the world am I supposed to get out of this, right? Now, maybe you don't mind those parts, but I usually read them real fast skip over them sometimes. But it's not really just the biblical genealogies. Bottom line, I'm kind of strange. I know, I'm not much for genealogies in general. I know some of you guys love them. You track your ancestry. You map your family tree. You consult sites like MyHeritage and 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Some of you guys even hang out in cemeteries. You're weird, right? <laughs> Although I suspect there are worse ways to spend your time. And usually I suppose it's innocent enough, but sometimes people kind of feel like that they'll be special if they can discover some of their ancestors were special. Or maybe you feel diminished because you can't find any ancestors who were special. Maybe your ancestors are lowlifes. Guys, I don't care who my ancestors were. I don't care whether they were good or not. They don't define me. I don't care what color they were. I don't care what money they had or didn't have, what grand things they did or what sins they committed. I don't care what stupid things they believed or what stupid things they did because their choices do not define me. My choices define me, right? Some of you guys are probably pushing back, and that's fine. I know I'm strange too. So I have this aversion to genealogies, and what happens when you open the first page of the New Testament, our covenant with God, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and it opens up with a genealogy. Seriously. Now I know that they viewed genealogies a little differently back then than we do now. You guys who track your family trees today, you've got your reasons. Some of you guys want to connect with long-lost relatives, and I suppose that's cool. Some of you guys are trying to establish your medical history, and I suppose that's useful. Some of you guys are looking for perhaps family members who are connected to some big event in history, and that's cool. Maybe you had kin that were 
in the 13 colonies or kin in the Civil War. That's interesting, I guess. Some of you guys figured that the more you discover about your family's past, the more you learn about yourself, which I think is weird, baffles me. My ancestors don't define me in things that matter. But back then, in the time of the Bible, genealogies were a lot different. Now, just a few years ago, Martin Luther King said one time, he says, I've got a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but rather by the content of their character. And I like that. Wouldn't that be cool? But back then, pre-Jesus, they wanted to know, are you a Jew or not? What tribe are you from? What clan are you from? Who, who is your dad? Who is your grandfather? It was a big deal to them, pre-Jesus. And back then, or right now, when people track their family trees, they like filling in all the gaps, right? Not so much in Bible times. They didn't care if there were gaps in their family tree. In fact, sometimes they'd actually leave people out on purpose. They would include just enough to make their point. And here's a real big difference. Today, you get husband and wife and you get sons and daughters and granddaughters and grandsons. Back then, they didn't include the ladies because back then, ladies didn't matter much. So the Gospel of Matthew, the book that they chose to be the first in our New Testament, opens up with this genealogy. And even back then, this is a weird one, on purpose, I think. And you've got to figure that Jesus didn't have this genealogy so he could find himself. That would be ludicrous. How would the human ancestors of Jesus make the Son of God any more or any less? And the genealogy of Jesus skips over some guys. But it's not the bad guys they skip over. In fact, the genealogy of Jesus kind of focuses on a rogues gallery. They're a weird bunch of people, kind of like you guys and me. And even back then, Matthew inserts a bunch of these ladies into the genealogy of Jesus. That was scandalous. Even more scandalous is that every single one of the ladies in this family tree of Jesus had a scandalous story, right? Like some of you ladies. So we've been tracking this trail of grace through the Old Testament, and it leads straight to Jesus whom the Apostle John describes as 100% truth and 100% grace. And I'm going to wrap up this amazing trail by focusing in on one of the most boring passages in the Bible, the genealogy of Jesus. But I challenge you, if you lean in anyway, you might discover some things about Jesus that will change your life, right? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Kind of, sort of. Actually, Jesus is the son of God, right? God in a bod, God stepping into our world, God coming here with a mission to fix what we had broken. God doesn't have a genealogy. God just is. He's eternal. So in reality, this is the genealogy of the human side of Jesus, right? Not the God side. And the very fact that God had a human side is mind-blowing. God steps into our world as a human. I mean, how does that even work? The eternal God has a first birthday. How does that work? The eternal God 
used a tomb for a couple of days. How does that work? The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, to them that meant that Jesus was the Savior, the hero that they'd been waiting for during this whole trail of grace. This is the guy they'd been waiting for. And it calls attention to two things. First of all, the son of Abraham. Why? Well, we started this trail of grace a couple of months ago by looking at this Abraham. He's a bit of a dork. Chosen by God for no other reason than grace. But here it is. 2,000 years ago, before Jesus, God had given Abraham a promise. This is the promise. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you famous, Abraham. You're going to be a blessing to others. In fact, all of the families on earth are going to be blessed through you. Somehow, through your line, everybody on earth is going to be touched, which includes you guys here. And Jesus is how God keeps this promise. He's also called the son of David. Son of David. We looked at his story a couple of weeks ago. David was a king, good guy, but he needed a boatload of grace too. And God had also given him a promise. God had said, your house and your kingdom are going to endure forever. Never going to go down before me. Your throne will be established forever. In other words, one of your descendants is going to be king forever, God says. So son of David became almost a code word for Messiah back in the time of Jesus. So this Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who fulfills the promise to Abraham, fulfills the promise to David, and here's where it gets boring, all right? We start getting to all these begats. How many of you guys grew up reading in the old King James Bible, right? I can't see your hands, but I know a lot of you guys did. Abraham begat Isaac. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah and a boatload more begats, which is weird. Hate reading that stuff. But if you dig underneath the surface just a little tiny bit, you're going to discover a wild list of people. This is the family of the Messiah. This is the family of the Son of God. Seriously? Don't you think God could have chosen better than this? In fact, I think it groups into three clusters. I'm going to call set one the scoundrels, set two the rogues, and set three the no-names. And I figure every single person in this room could fit into one of these groups, right? Start with the scoundrels. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons. We call them the patriarchs, kind of the trailhead of this trail of grace. And these were some guys who did some pretty cool things for God. They trusted God sometimes. But guys, they're scoundrels, every single one of them. Abraham and Isaac, both of those guys passed off their wives as their sisters, right? You know why? Because they were scared. So they allowed their wives to get pulled into another man's harem, and they did it to save their own skins. These are guys who put their own wives at risk because they feared for their own life more than for the safety and the honor of their lady. I call that cowardice. I also call that a lack of trust in God. And this Jacob... That's a guy who, if you read the story, he lies to his dad, cheats his brother, plays favorites with his sons, which stirs all kinds of trouble. They're scoundrels. 
Jacob gets this Judah and his brothers. Let me tell you about Judah and his brothers. Judah sold his youngest brother into slavery, which was the noble thing to do because the rest of them wanted to kill him, right? That's a bit messed up. Your families are messed up, but I hope you're not messed up this bad. And then you've got Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, and he tells us that the mother, one of these ladies, name was Tamar. So you think about it. Judah is the dad. Tamar is the mom, right? What it doesn't say on the surface, but which people back then understood, is that Tamar is also Judah's daughter-in-law, right? So the father-in-law is also the father of her two boys. So these boys could call Judah either dad or grandpa, whichever one they wished, which is twisted, right? Listen, guys, Matthew didn't have to list Tamar in the genealogy of Jesus. She was a girl, and her story's messed up. So why is she here? Why does Matthew want you to remember this sordid part of the story? In the family of Jesus, incest, right? And then you get to some guys that you don't much know much about, kind of like a lot of the people in your family trees. We've got Hezron and Ram. The only thing you know about Ram is that he started a fine line of trucks, one of which I drive. <laughs> and there's Aminadab. The only thing we know about Aminadab is that his daughter married a guy named Aaron, who was the right hand of Moses, you know, the Exodus, the Ten Commandments, the law. In other words, the only thing we know about him is that he had a famous daughter, Right? That's a lot of us, not because you're special, you're going to be remembered, but you had a brother, a sister, a kid who's going to be special. You're close to someone who's famous. Guys like that in the family tree of Jesus. And then you've got this dude called Nashon, right? He was one of the guys who was with Moses in the wilderness when they crossed the wilderness. You know, he was there when they parted the Red Sea. He was part of there. One of the guys who ate from the manna and the quail and drank the water from the rock. He was one of the guys who worshipped the golden calf when Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. He wasn't permitted to enter the promised land in the family tree of Jesus. And Nashon begets Salmon. I prefer salmon because salmon tastes good, especially grilled on a cedar plank, right? Salmon begets Boaz, whose mother is Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. Her story's in the Bible too. Remember the story about the walls of Jericho falling down? In other words, after that happened, salmon marries a Gentile prostitute the prostitute who helped the Israelites destroy your town. Why does Matthew drop her name into this genealogy of Jesus? He didn't have to. She's a girl, and she was a messed up girl. So now you've got incest in the family tree of Jesus, and you've got whores in the family tree of Jesus, all kinds of scoundrels, right? Boaz begets Obed, whose mother is Ruth, there's a story about Ruth in the Bible, too. For the most part, she comes off looking pretty good, except for the part where she covers herself in perfume and crawls into bed with one of her mother-in-law's kin before they're married, which is scandalous back then. So why does Matthew drop her name into the genealogy of Jesus? He didn't have to. 
most wouldn't have. Any stories like that in your family trees? Premarital misbehavior? Maybe that's one of your contributions to the family tree. Those are the scoundrels. Now we're ready for set two, the rogues, right? This Obed begets Jesse, who begets David the king. King David, right? We talked about him a few weeks ago. On the one hand, he's called a man after God's own heart. He's a great guy. On the other hand, he broke nearly every one of the Ten Commandments spectacularly. And all the guys who follow him, the guys in the next cluster, they're all powerful. They're kings, but almost none of them are good, right? It's a rogues gallery. Matthew actually says, David begat Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. In other words, Matthew features the one event in David's life which he is really, really a jerk, that he's most ashamed of, I hope. And he doesn't even use her name, right? Bathsheba. He simply reminds us that David had fathered Solomon through another man's wife, right? It's an ugly story where David lusted, coveted, right? Committed adultery, lied, murdered to cover his tracks. Why does Matthew care that we remember this story in the genealogy of Jesus? He didn't have to mention that part. I mean, David has all these good things that he did. Solomon was worse. He was a smart dude and so self-absorbed. He built the temple. We call it Solomon's Temple temple for God, but he spent twice as much time building his own palace for himself. And he taxed his people to the gills to get it done. And then he started marrying all these women, foreign women, a lot, 700 wives, 300 concubines, which I think is kind of out of control, right? And these foreign wives would bring their idols with them, idols of their puny little gods, and Solomon let him. In fact, he let him worship their puny little gods, which was a violation of the first two commandments. No other gods and no idols, right? Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was even worse. In fact, he was so bad that he sparked a civil war, which he lost. In fact, here's what the Bible says about Rehoboam. It says, During Rehoboam's reign, the people of Judah did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They provoked God's anger with their sin. It was even worse than that of their ancestors. For they built themselves pagan shrines, set up sacred pillars, Asherah poles, on every high hill and under every green tree. There were even male and female shrine prostitutes throughout the land. And this is supposed to be a theocracy. He was a terrible king. Now, I don't have time to spell out how bad most of these guys were. Rehoboam begets Abijah, who was no better than his dad. Abijah begat Asa, who begat Jehoshaphat, which I just love that name. I think it's a cool name. Some of you ladies need to use that one. A couple of these guys are pretty good, but not completely. We're told that they were pretty good, but they didn't finish eradicating idolatry. They allowed sin to linger like we do. Jehoshaphat begat Jehoram, who married a terrible wife. His wife was his downfall. I was going to say like some of you guys, but that would be mean. But have you ever seen a decent guy marry a terrible girl who led him into sin? 
Or have you ever watched a decent girl marry a terrible guy who led her, him, into sin? Jehoram's story's like that. And it's in the family tree of Jesus. Jehoram begat Uzziah, pretty good guy for the most part, but not completely. In fact, when he disobeyed God, he was stricken by God with leprosy, the Bible says. Then comes Ahaz, who actually sacrificed one of his sons to a pagan godlet, right? In fact, he was so bad, he nailed the temple doors shut. How bad is that? Hezekiah is next, one of the few good guys, but he begets Manasseh, one of the worst of the rogues gallery. I mean, you know any good men with terrible sons? That's what those are like. Manasseh rebuilt the shrines of the pagan godlets. He sacrificed one of his sons to these godlet wannabes. He sets up an idol in the temple of God as he murders a bunch of God's people. What's weird about that story is at the very end of his life, he repents. Can a guy who is that bad actually repent at the end of his life? Can a Jeffrey Dahmer find grace? Manasseh begets Josiah, one of the good ones. And then it lists Jeconiah, who was king when the nation of Israel was actually crushed by Babylon. And the people were taken into exile. And at that time, they thought that God's promises had failed. God had promised that all the families of the earth can be blessed through Abraham. God had promised that one of David's sons is going to sit on the throne forever. And the nation of Judah is no more. Right? That's set two, the rogues gallery. Set one, the scoundrels. Set two, the rogues gallery. Set three, the no names, which is not accurate because every one of them had names. We just don't know anything about these guys. Like the name of most of the guys in your family tree. They're just names. There are exceptions. Jehoiakim beget Sheltiel, some dude who beget Zerubbabel, who was a pretty important guy. In fact, some of the guys back then wondered whether he might be the Messiah that they were waiting for. He wasn't, but he helped rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel begat Abihud. I don't know anything about him. Abihud begat Eliakim, clueless. Eliakim begat Azor, another name, who begat Zadok, who begat Achim, who begat Elihud, who begat Eleazar, who begat Matthew, who begat Jacob, a bunch of no names, right? Kind of like most of the guys and ladies in your family tree. Kind of like the way most of our descendants are going to view us. Stephen Edward Patterson, married to some chick named Julie. I think he was a preacher. I know he begat a daughter named Alethe and a son named Andy. Beyond that, nothing special that I know of. And then this Jacob, father's a guy named Joseph who married a chick named Mary, even though she was pregnant with someone else's child because God told him that that child was special. And notice it doesn't say that Matthew or that Joseph begat Jesus because Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. It just says that Mary was the mother of Jesus who was the Messiah, the destination of this trail of grace. Another of Jesus' disciples, a guy named John, said that the Word of God became flesh. He became human. 
and he made his dwelling among us, and he was full of grace and truth. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, full of grace and truth, 100% truth and 100% grace. Because of Jesus, guys, there is no your truth and my truth. There's God's truth. Because of Jesus, we get a glimpse of God's truth. Because of Jesus, we knew that some of these guys in his family tree are rogues, scoundrels like us. And because of Jesus, we learned that God loves them anyway, chose them anyway, and used them anyway. People like us. You see, without Jesus, scoundrels and rogues and dorks and twits like us have no chance. Just look at the kinds of people in Jesus' family tree. Cowards, cheats, liars, murderers, self-centered, greedy jerks, brothers who hate each other, who'd kill each other if they could, those who are engaged in all kinds of sexual sins, premarital misbehavior, adultery, incest, prostitution. There are some guys who were mostly good, but who still tolerated some sin, like a lot of us. There were some guys who were mostly bad, and some guys who were flat-out terrible. Can a guy who was flat-out terrible get right with God right before he dies? One of them tried, and I think he succeeded. There are guys who sinned huge sins like murder, the shame they carried, the shame God graced. There were guys who were flat out at war with God, pushing every kind of alternative to God no matter how vile. There were even guys who sacrificed their children to some puny pagan godlet wannabe. And there are lots of no names. I know they had their stories too. And they all needed grace because we're all messed up. Jews and Gentiles, because God doesn't seem to care about things like color and race. The powerful and the powerless, because that stuff doesn't matter much to God either. All in the family tree of Jesus, the Messiah. It's a diseased family tree, isn't it? If you had a tree like this in your yard, you'd cut it down and burn it. You'd probably try to start over. Didn't God know what kind of people these children of Abraham would be? Couldn't God have chosen better? Well, maybe that's the point. I wonder. Webb brought this up when we were studying last week. I wonder if Matthew intentionally shaped the genealogy of this way because Matthew knew that these were his kind of people. He was one of them, Matthew the despised tax collector, graced by Jesus. Are you willing to admit that these are your kind of people too? They are. Sometimes we like to picture ourselves as mavericks, but it's hard to admit that we are scoundrels or rogues. But I'll bet that if we discovered your secrets, we'd discover that you fit into this family tree too. You need grace just as badly as the next guy. In fact, sometimes you wonder if God's grace is big enough to include you. Is God's grace enough for you? Because you know you can't fix you. 
So why does Matthew start his story of Jesus with this weird, weird genealogy? Because, guys, these are the kind of people that God loves. These are the kind of people that God chose. These are the kind of people that God came to save. So what makes you think that anything in your life disqualifies you from this story of God's love and God's grace? What makes you think that there's anything in your story that would disqualify you from taking your spot in this family tree of Jesus? Because, guys, it is your family tree. If you want to know what your real family tree is, your spiritual family tree, this is it. You have been bathed in a furious grace. You have been immersed in a scandalous grace. A grace that has no minimum requirements. A grace that has no end. Everyone is invited in and everyone gets in in exactly the same way. It's grace, guys. I want you to listen to the words of Judah Smith. And I don't want you to listen just with your minds. I want you to listen with your hearts. You ready? And the nerve called the audacity of believers to think. I got saved by grace, but now that I'm in this deep, dark place of bondage, I'm going to work hard to get myself out. What? That's the opposite of the gospel. Are you bound? Are you held under the power of this temptation, this sin, the sexual urges? Do you feel like it's controlling you? What are you going to do? I'm going to shake myself free. Stop it! No, you won't! You're no match for the powers of hell and the urges of sin and sexual temptation. You will not overcome it and you will never overcome it. You'll just be another statistic. There's no answer within yourself. Your own marriage, your own goodness, your own discipline, your own devotion will not save your marriage and will not save your kids. There's only one. And he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus and I'm the Barabbas and they start to take my chains off and I say, no, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt. I deserve the shame. I deserve the consequence. I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me and say, no, son, let me have it. Let me have your sin. Let me have your pain. No, God, I did it to myself. I deserve it. My marriage won't make it. This is what I deserve. I deserve divorce. I deserve poverty. I deserve sickness. I deserve it all. No! God, I, I'm so ashamed. Give me your shame. What if I do it again? I'll still be here. Oh, God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you. I, I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins. This is all we got. 
It's all I got, it's all you got. We can play games, we can play church games. We can pretend like some people are better than others and that's why they're blessed, or we can all come to the honest conclusion that it's God. And it's God alone. The greatest challenge is not your discipline, your devotion, your focus. Your greatest challenge is believing the gospel. Could it be that there's a God with a love so scandalous, so wide, so deep, so vast, so high, so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive? Let me have your sin, son. Okay. When I give him my sin, let's stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him, I see him walking to the post to be whipped. As I stand a free man, all the attention is turned now. And I feel the love of God saying, go son, live your life. I'll pay the price. Where did we get off? Thinking that we were gonna set ourselves free. It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If his blood is sufficient for your salvation, his blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough. saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my
what it is that Christ has done on our behalf, the way in which he did die, where he volunteered for our sin. And so we come to the table and we recall uh, through taking the bread and taking the juice and remembering his body and his blood that was sacrificed on our behalf. And when we come to these tables, there's offering boxes where we have as an opportunity, if you're part of that family, this is where we give back those first fruits, those, uh, those first parts where we recognize in an act of worship to God, thanking him for what he's done. And there's uh, white buckets on each of these worship stations as well. It's a place where we give even beyond that. When we feel so led, we call it a generous bucket where when we feel led to give even more, we do so. And we use that, again, just to bless people in our community. Are you part of the family of God? Is this your family tree? We start with these images of baptism, these moments where people have seen their life changed because of this relationship with Jesus, this moment where they become part of the family. We do this family stuff together at the table. Are you part of the family? Have you made that same decision? If you haven't, but if you feel like it's time, today is the opportunity. We're, we're going to give you that to do that today. 
And so I'm sitting right up front. Doc is as well. If you are ready to get baptized today, you can come forward during this time of communion. You can come forward during the next couple songs, and we'll go back and we'll get it all set up to where you can do that today, where you can walk out of here starting a new path and a new relationship with God himself. And that's pretty cool. Why don't you go ahead and stand and let's go to the table.
Father, we want to show the world, be a light to this world that is in need of you. Father, teach us what it looks like to live with grace, to live in grace, and to give grace. If you curse me, then I will bless you. If you hurt me, I will forgive. And if you hate me, then I will love you. Oh, I choose the Jesus way. If you're helpless, I will defend you. And if you're burdened, I'll share the
give you all glory and praise with these lives that you've given to us. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Hey, you guys can have a seat. Uh, just a few moments here. We're going to walk through just some uh, family kind of business. We've been using that language all morning, but there's a few things we want to make you aware of. And the first thing we want to talk about this morning is our nudges. Uh, now, one of the weird things, if you're not used to being here at Cap City, one of the weird things that we do, we do a lot of weird things, okay, but one of them is we do this thing called nudges that we do every month, and what we do is we, we try to have this idea, we come up with these ideas of ways in which we can help you help others. That's really all it is, okay? And so we, we try to find ways to help you be able to, to share your faith, to be able to reach out to someone, to be able to encourage someone to come to church. This month, we're going to put an emphasis on you inviting or encouraging someone to come to church with you. Any Sunday is great. Every Sunday would be wonderful, right? Uh, but we're going to aim for the end of the month. So we're going to do this through a nudge. That's uh, We're bringing back the Oreos. We did this last year. I'm, I need to remind you of the rules. They're not for you. All right? They're not your Oreos. You can take as many packs as you want, but none of them are for you. All right? Like you take as much. So when you walk out, there's a table set up. Take them. Give those to somebody. Invite them to come to church with you. That's the whole plan. That's all it is, all right? It's very simple. There's a sticker on it that has some stuff on it, so, like, you don't even necessarily have to say a lot. You can just throw Oreos at people in these packages, and the idea will get across, okay? So it's very simple, very easy. Anybody can do it. Just don't eat them. That's your job. Your one job is don't eat them, okay? So we're doing that this month. Take as many as you want. Hand them out. Share them with your friends. Invite people to church. And we're going to aim for the end of the month, for, for September, uh, the last Sunday of the month, that last weekend, we're going to do a thing called the Weekend of Welcome. It's something we're kind of stealing from some of the college campuses this time of year as the kids go to school. They have these Weekends of Welcome. We're going to do something similar. So we're going to have an event on Friday night. You'll hear more about that as that gets closer. We'll have uh, Sunday morning will be geared towards inviting your friends and getting them here that Sunday morning. I think there's stuff scheduled already that Saturday for our youth and, and the kids. And so there's going to be stuff all weekend long opportunities for you to welcome and invite people in. We're very excited about it. We just don't want you to eat the Oreos. If you want Oreos, just go to the store. They have them. Like you can get your own Oreos, all right? These are not your Oreos. They're for other people. So make sure that you share your Oreos, okay? So that's kind of what we're doing this month. Nudges, it's a little bit different. Aiming towards this, we can welcome, invite your friends, get them here. Uh, today, every first Sunday of the month, we do a thing called Getting Started 101 because we know that everyone's in a different place. And so if you are maybe new to church, if you have some questions about who this Jesus guy is, if you want to understand what it looks like to start a relationship with Jesus, we would love to answer whatever questions you may have to help you on that path. And so as you leave these doors off to your left, past the Oreos, like you to walk past the Oreos, there's a room called our Connections Room. I will be there. Doc will be there. Someone will be there to just kind of answer whatever questions you may have uh, to walk through and help you prep for what this may look like in your life, all right? So we will make sure you're aware of that. And today was our last sermon out of this sermon series called Trail of Grace, which I personally have deeply enjoyed. I hope it's been as good for you as well. Sometimes, I'll just let you peek behind the curtain, sometimes preachers don't love the things that they're preaching about, <laughs> all right? But we have enjoyed, the Doc and I, we've enjoyed this series. This has been a good one. We're moving forward into something that we're going to call Listen, all right? Uh, one of the things that Doc says all the time is he says that we want to be a church that's that that goes with God, for God, uh, God's way, all right? Like we want to live as Christians with God, for God, God's way. Most of the time, we're really good at focusing in on that for God part. We're really good at trying to find the rules, find the right ways to live, those kinds of things. Even if we're not good at it, at least we're really good at those targets and knowing what it is that we should be aiming at. 
one of the things that we really struggle with is this idea of being with God. Sometimes, sometimes we don't find it so easy to even set that as a target. And so we're going to spend a few weeks looking at what it looks like to live with God, living with God, all right? And so I think it's going to be an interesting series. It's going to be a, a, a big shift from kind of where we've been, but talking through what does it look like to live in a daily basis where you're finding ways to be with God in all parts of your life, all right? So that's kind of where we're aiming. That's where we're going. We are, uh, you're done listening to me. I've been up here three times. That's been too many today, okay? So you're done with me. We're going to close out with a song. We're glad that you're here. We look forward to seeing you again.
Go and tell the world about what God has done for you, okay?